When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm delighted to be back in Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce, as always, joined by Christian Spence. How are you, Christian? I'm good, thank you. And Alex Davis. I'm great, thank you. Right, gents. Last week we discussed deal or no deal. However, we think there's a little bit more detail to flesh out on this. So I'm going to open up the floor to I'm going to open up the floor to uh, to Christian and just ask what are the WT rules should a no deal occur? Okay, so this is this is drawn out quite heavily in the report we talked about last week from the uh, from the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. So lots of people have talked about, for now, this idea that it's okay, we can walk away from the EU because we will just trade on WTO terms. So WTO is the World Trade Organization. It's a global body, as it sounds like, which essentially sets the minimum standards for trade between its member countries. Almost all countries in the world uh, are members of the WTO, and the UK is a founder member. So it was born out of an organization called GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, became the WTO in the 1990s. Um, and so people often think, first of all, actually the UK is not an independent member of the WTO. That's not true. We are. But we share a commitment with the EU. So essentially all EU states decided as part of the, 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 uh, the treaties of the European Union that the EU would negotiate trade on their behalf. But we remain independent members. Uh, what we do is we share those agreements on tariffs and things with all the other EU states collectively. So that's that's one thing. Mm-hmm. Now, people have said, essentially, it's been a massive simplification of how trade works. Um, and they say, actually, if we come out of the EU with no deal, we come out of the single market, it's not a problem. We'll just trade with the EU on WTO terms. And that means that, essentially, what the EU has is what's called a common external tariff. That's a tariff that it imposes on all goods from third countries, so from non-EU countries, that arrive, uh, that arrive in the EU. That varies hugely. The global average is only about 3%, but some sectors can be very large. Uh, Automotive is around 10. Uh, Agriculture can get as high as 30 or 40. And there are some tiny sectors where 100, 200, 300% tariffs tariffs exist. Uh, And the argument has been, essentially, that the amount of money we pay in tariffs is still less on balance than the amount we pay into the EU budget every year, and so it doesn't matter. Yes, some sectors would be affected more than others, but broadly it doesn't matter. The challenge is there's more to trade than free trade agreements, um, and that's the real difficulty here. Now, I didn't realise that. There is actually a, an equation or some logic between, sorry, behind how much we pay into the EU 
but actually how much our businesses save on tariffs. I, I, I had no idea that there was a relationship. Yeah, I mean, they're not, they're not set up as a relationship, as it were. It just happens that, you know, we contribute X billion a year to, to the European budget, and there is a level of tariff, of course, that isn't charged uh, on goods leaving the UK and arriving in the EU because we're uh, a member of the common commercial policy um, of the EU. So the challenge here is we need to get through, we need to dig a little bit deeper into what all this WTO stuff means uh, because we've got lots of our firm Brexiteers saying it's not a problem, we can do it on WTO terms. Mm -hmm. The usual example they tend to say is, look, actually, you don't need a trade agreement because the EU doesn't have a free trade agreement with the United States. Those two bodies trade intensely, you know, about 20% of UK uh, trade goes to the US. That shows you can trade perfectly well without any trade agreement. Uh, and that's true. But there are other things in place. So it is true that the EU does not have a free trade agreement with the United States, but it does have a load of other things. Usually we call them around conformative assessment and minor equivalence agreements. Technical terms, we won't worry about those for now. But there's about 38, I think, different bilateral treaties signed between the EU and the US which help to facilitate trade. Um, and we come back to this barrier that we, I think we talked about in one of the very early podcasts about tariff barriers and non-tariff barriers. Mm. And what all of these agreements do is mostly deal with the non-tariff barrier issue. So they deal about common regulation. So conformative assessment is essentially if, am I happy that if, a, if some goods made in the United States have been certified by that manufacturer as acceptable to EU standards, certified by the US government, essentially, that they're happy they're being checked to EU standards, that then the EU will not check those goods again. Essentially, it believes your checking process. That's one of the big ones that's, uh, that's in there, and there are loads of other minor ones. Those really are the things that oil the wheels of trade more than tariffs. Tariffs is just an additional cost. It's not necessarily an additional hassle. It might take your margin away. It might make you less competitive. And it's those things that potentially, if we leave with no deal, the UK loses access to. So it's not just we'll end up with tariffs on trade from America because we already have them now. That's true. We might lose some of those things that just help things to spin more easily. At last count, actually, there are 56 bilateral treaties between the EU and the US. 56? Um, 56, yeah. yeah. Um, give me some examples of some, just some, some of the names. Oh, I, oh, oh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it without Googling them, oh, right, I'm, okay, I'm okay. afraid. I don't, I don't have a list of them in front of me, uh, but, there, <laughs> but there are 56. Um, and it, I mean, I'll, I'll go back and just reiterate some of these points over and over again because they need to be made. But it, it, often people bring up the US and again, so we've got 56 bilateral treaties with them. Um, but also people bring up countries like uh, Australia, Canada, um, Israel, Switzerland. So countries that technically don't have a trade deal with the EU, but again, there are all these other types of little agreements which we have, which kind of ease trade along. Um, and it, it needs to be constantly re reiterated, really, that WTO terms are the, the minimum level. They're like, you can't, you can't get worse than WTO oh, terms, basically. Right. They're, they're the minimum level of, tra of, tra of trade framework. And so... If you look at things only in terms of trade, it, it's very safe to say that WTO terms are the worst deal. You, you, you can't get worse than that. Any, any, I, I think it was a point made specifically in that report, again, the Foreign Affairs uh, Select Committee report, that, that kind of a worst case scenario trade deal is, is better than WTO rules in, in some sense, because there's actually a deal on something involved. Um, and, and so, so if we fall back on WTO, there's no going backwards from there. I mean, it, it, is, it is the minimum level. Um, 
No, no other major player trades with the EU solely on, on WTO, WTO terms. It's, it's, it's just not true. Um, and I, yeah, I just thought that that point needs to be made over and over. No, really. you're right. And I think for, you know, for those major trading nations uh, and those trading blocks, the point is none of them rely on WTO. Mm-hmm. It's there as a baseline, but they've all got something else. I think at the last count, there are only eight countries in the world that don't have some form of trade facilitation do, agreement. Do we know who the, those eight countries are? Off the top of my head, no. Um, <laughs> easy one. But it kind of shows just how minor it is. Yeah. So for all of those major ones, uh, I like to say, you know, the US, Canada, Israel, Switzerland, Australia, with no free trade deals, Canada is now coming through, we've no free trade deals with any of those, but they're all, all of these other ones. And essentially walking out without a deal means, okay, maybe you're happy with the tariffs and it's not a problem, but potentially you lose access to all of those treaties as well. Okay. Well, let's not talk about the treaties just yet, because we'll move on to that in a second. Let's talk about the the regulations that the UK will have to make up once they leave. Mm-hmm. And also, I assume they'll be funding some institutions to enforce these regulations, right? Yeah, and, and this is one of the big challenges again with, you know, so I have, a, I have a lot of sympathy for the Brexit side, but what, I, what we find really hard is when what is a very, very complex topic becomes kind of screwed down to its really basic minimums, which is great for kind of getting those high-level concepts across, but is no good for actually solving some of the problems we might face. So the challenge is, um, Theresa May announced a while ago that she's going to bring forth this great repeal bill, um, mm. which is a terribly worded um, Document. Well, the grand sounding though. It sounds great. Um, It won't repeal anything. Well, it will. It'll probably repeal the 1972 European Communities Act, which is which sounds dull, but that's the bit of UK law which essentially enshrines the the EU to be able to make laws into into our market. Um, The whole point of her doing that is actually very good. She says we need to maintain some kind of regulatory. uh, Similarity between the day before we leave the EU, which looks like it'll probably be. 29th of March 2019, and the 30th of March 2019. So the landscape is broadly the same. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut and paste all EU legislation straight into our statute books in one bill. That sounds great. Um, It's actually going to be really complex because some EU law is easily translatable in the sense that it's all sat somewhere separately. Then you've got regulations and other things which handle differently. So that's going to be a challenge on its own. The other thing, of course, is all of those EU laws and regulations have to be supervised by a particular body. So the EU treaties, of course, are, are, uh, are managed, are legally enforced by the European Court of Justice, which we know the, uh, the Prime Minister wants to remove the UK uh, from under its control. But then there will be our pharmaceutical regulations will be managed by the European Medicines Agency. Uh, our nuclear safety regulations are managed by the European Nuclear Agency, etc., etc., etc. So the point is, if we're going to pull out of jurisdiction of the EU because we want to take that control and have power over all of our own laws, if you cut and paste all those regulations into the UK, all you're going to do if you literally cut and paste is you're going to leave references to all of those agencies in the law about who's responsible. Um, so you can't do that because we said apparently we're not going to be subject to them. Great. So you still want the regulations to apply, but you're going to need a body that supervises those regulations and makes them, which means each one of those 40-odd bodies in the EU is going to have to be replicated in the UK. And again, theoretically not a problem, but we're looking at a two-year window. How long is it going to take to establish and then staff and then start to drive policy through all of those things? 
um, that becomes a big question. So just I'll make just one point here, and then probably just ask a a question around that. Um, this is the classic remain argument, isn't it? That if you leave, you're going to end up with a load of laws made by Europe, and then you'd be following laws made by Europe, but with no way to inf- uh, to to influence e- um, any of the regulation. And I think that's the scenario that that, that we're look, that, that that we're looking at here. My question is, why would you, we need to replace these in- institutions rather than just have companies build things to a certain a certain standard to match what these in- institutions are asking for? It's a very good question, but of course the point is all of this is led by um, current government policy, which is we will take back control of our own laws and we won't be subject to um, foreign regulation, essentially. That's a bit simplistic, but mm. we'll go with that as a generalisation. Um, so there is no reason why the UK government couldn't decide to say, actually, we will... Uh, not only work to the European Medicines Agency standards for, for pharmaceutical regulation, but we agree to be regulated by them and we would sign a bilateral treaty between the UK and the EU to do that. We can do that. That's not a problem. The question is whether that is politically feasible. And the, you know, the narrative from Theresa May now, uh, as it stands, is that that is not where we want to be. Uh, in which case we are going to need a regulatory body to, to manage that. I, I, I'll just chip in there. I think, I think it's a good point which, which, which many people make that you know we, we make things to these standards now and they're recognised and so on the day that we leave why can't we just kind of have an agreement in place that will continue and that they'll be recognised but I think the point is, a, is that there's no precedent for that kind of situation and in terms of the law um, there would be a void and basically no one would, would know exactly what was happening. Um, at, at that point, the EU would no longer be leg- legally obligated to recognise any kind of authorisation or conformity assessment that had been done. Um, and so it's not the point that, they, that we would stop applying those regulations or would stop uh, making things to those standards. It's just that in terms of the law, it wouldn't quite be clear whether they would be recognised or not. Um, and I think you make a good point about this idea that you know what's what's the point if if we're still going to have to conform to all these regulations anyway, um, and th- there's there's maybe two points around that. I mean, what one is that once this happens, and potentially once the Great Repeal Bill has is kind of gone through, and all those laws are now in our statute books, um, EU law and regulations will continue to develop and continue to change, and so arguably there's going to be this kind of diversion between our regs and our laws and, and theirs. Um, in which case it might become increasingly difficult to trade with the EU. So then there's the argument that basically we should allow all these things to automatically apply to us anyway um, and that we should have systems in place so that as EU law changes, it automatically applies to us. I mean, but that takes us back to basically membership of the EEA and and the Norway-type option because that would be the case under that situation. I I, I mean, I know the answer to this before I even ask the question, but almost an a la carte-style membership of each individual institution mm-hmm. sounds like um so, sounds like something which should be should be considered yeah um it's 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 difficult and, and i mean it'd be massively complicated and it, it's not obvious whether the eu would allow that to happen um but i think p- potentially that there, there is another argument from the other side that whilst we are subjected to the 30 odd eu kind of bodies which cover these things um, decisions like these are also increasingly being made on global, the global stage by other bigger bodies. Um, and so, I mean, off the top of my head, I mean, Codex Alimentarius is kind of a global food standards uh, regu- regulator, um, which actually controls much of the, much of the things that, the e- that people think the EU controls. 
Um, so I think there was one around around like food labeling, saying once we come out of the EU, we'll be able to change all our food labeling and things like that. Um, because people think that that's an EU reg, but it's not. It's actually come from Codex Elementarius, which is basically a global body. Um, and so there's potentially an argument that what we need to do slowly, and I mean it'll take decades, but is we need to move away from these EU bodies to, towards the more global ones. Um, and then we get into what we call unilateral control. So um, bodies like Codex Elementarius, you sign up and then basically as, as the regs change, they just automatically apply to everyone that's included. Um, and then you enter the world of kind of unilateral regulation, whereby it happens on a global stage rather than on an EU one. And I think that kind of sums up part of the argument that maybe the EU is moving at a, a bit of a different speed to the global kind of trade outlook. Um, but it's it's massively complicated. I, I don't know what the solution is. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it's going to be interesting. That, yeah, that is interesting because as we as we unravel all these various regulations and in as institutions, we are kind of getting to the, well, not not quite not even the law of unintended consequences, just things that 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 we never expected. Pre-podcast, you mentioned a potential impact on uh, on open skies, which. It, it just never never occurred to me that this would even be on the table. No, I think this is the challenge. Is you know sometimes I have some uh, some teasing conversations with our MPs when I when I chat to them and they say, oh god, you know this Brexit thing's terribly complex. We don't know really what things we're going to have to fix. And I said, well, actually, you know, you are the people who've been signing these deals essentially um, for the past thirty or forty years, and you've done so really without paying any attention. You know, we only have to go back about less than ten years um, to a Euro- to having a Europe minister who boasted of having not read the Lisbon. Treaty at a time when we were signing it. Uh, yeah, who was of, that? Uh, I think it was Caroline Flint. Brilliant. Off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> and so that's this is, but this is the position the UK has always been in with the EU. It's never really, you know, it's never really been a partner in a true sense. It's always sort of been slightly fringe. Um, but you're right. So open skies. So actually, in many ways, some of the things we that we know are part of the EU are easy. We know the ECJ is a big institution. We know about some of those bigger regulatory bodies, the medical agency, the nuclear safety agency, all of those. But then there's all these other things that have kind of spun out of the EU over time. Um, Because it's that other thing, you know, the EU has itself evolved. It started as a very loose collection of states just after the Second World War. It has increased its its remit over that time. It's increased its members. And so it's taken taken regulatory control of more and more things. Um, So the, yeah, this EU-US Open Skies, it's an agreement that's between the European Union and the US. And it essentially says that any EU airline and any US airline can fly between any point in either of those two states. So you don't need to go through national government regulators uh, to do that. If I want to set up an airline tomorrow that flies from Manchester to Los Angeles, I can do that. That's part of the Open Skies Agreement um, covers that. It was designed a while ago, came into power um, nine, ten years ago, and it was there really to just try and increase competition. People were worried about the, the prices, that actually your, your primary um, Europe-US routes were dominated by just the national flag carriers particularly. Um, how do you open that market up? Um, and the, yeah, things like this potentially come into play. So if we f- come out of the EU and we, you know, we don't stay party to the EU Open Skies Agreement, where does that leave uh, airlines wanting to start new routes between the UK and the EU? Where does that leave UK, US routes? The answer is broadly we don't know. Now this sounds kind of dull and tangential to life, but 
the example I give is, you know, for those who are old enough, can you remember those fights at Heathrow between BA and Virgin when Virgin was opening up its Atlantic routes um, for those landing slots at Heathrow? You know, these are really prized things that they're desperately fighting for. BA would not let go of any of its landing slots because it was a crucial crucial flight for the for the airline, for its financials. Trying to get a new market competitor in there, it was very difficult. The Open Skies Agreement, whilst actually it's not opened a great deal of new transatlantic travel um, overall in terms of new airlines, it's a good set, it's a good agreement in the sense it's trying to liberalise and open the market. Mm-hmm. It's all of these things that actually people don't know about. You're right, you said you've not heard about it, and that's that's cool. Now nor has most people. Um, it's these things, and actually, you know, government's challenge is not only replacing these things if it wants to, or whether we stay involved, it's actually identifying just how many of these agreements we're currently party to automatically by virtue of membership. And as we discussed last week, there's been almost, well, almost no assessment on, on any of this stuff. I mean, we don't know how many of these treaties will need to be, be replaced. I think I did see one estimate, it's, it's at least 10 years, 10 years worth of work. I don't know if it's 10 years worth of work to replace it all or just to identify it all. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, replacing is certainly going to be a colossal amount, which is really why, you know, whilst, you know, I, I sort of joked about the Great Repeal Bill earlier, it's important. It's an important starting point. It's just to level the playing field. Um, you know, so companies say, okay, the regulatory environment, at least, um, will be the same the day after Brexit as the day before. Um, but yes, all of these other deals, um, I guess this is really where the government and the EU will be focusing on the transitional arrangements, essentially, is can we come up with a, a relatively straightforward treaty which says basically for all of this sort of stuff, for now it keeps in place and we, you know, we review over a period of time. Well, I guess there is a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel-ish, which there is a, let me get this right, the Vienna, Conven- um, the Vienna Convention, hang on, <laughs> I've got succession of treaties here, but that makes no sense. Yeah, have you no, ever mentioned of the succession of treaties? So this is this is good. Yeah, as you said, you you open a you open a, a kind of Pandora's box here. So the challenge is what some people on the on the leave side have said is we talked earlier about all of those additional treaties that the EU has with third countries for exporting. It might not have trade deals, but it's got those. Um, but it's also got the trade deals themselves as treaties, and the leave side have said. Once we leave the EU, we can retain access to all of those deals, essentially. So the treaty between the EU and third countries, the UK pulls out of the EU but maintains a signatory on those treaties independently. Um, So actually we don't need to worry about leaving because actually everything will stay. We still get access to all of those trade deals the EU's negotiated, all of the agreements we've just talked about like Open Skies. Um, and they say that we can do that because of the Vienna Convention on the Succession of States in Respect of Treaties. Um, that's a very long title um, for something that actually is a relatively complex idea. What it goes to the heart of, it was kind of born in the, in the 70s and 80s as we started to see um, decolonization, really, essentially. So your big old colonial states... UK, of course, being one of them, but France and Spain and Portugal, as all of their colonies started to declare independence, and then increasingly so in the 1990s and the collapse of, uh, of the USSR and those new states in Eastern Europe, was about how do we ensure that those states which don't want to be bound by their old colonial um, their old colonial oppressors' treaties <laughs> um, are no longer bound by them, 
and that those states who do want to remain part of the good treaties that their yeah. colonial oppressors had delivered could stay part of them. And that kind of goes to the heart of this. The problem is there's no legal clarity over whether you can actually do this. Um, uh, at the moment, there's only about 22 countries uh, who've actually signed the convention. Um, critically, the United Kingdom is not one of them. Um, actually, said there's only 22. Most aren't. And they're hev- those, the signatories to this are heavily focused on being small countries that, that used to essentially be under colonial rule. So it's your, it's your old Eastern Bloc, um, and then some of your particularly kind of North African states uh, and Caribbean states who've declared independence. So the answer is, is, we come into that same box as we came a few weeks ago when we talked about, is Article 50 revocable? There are some big legal questions to which actually we don't know the answer. And increasingly, I think, as, you know, as government tries to work out what it wants to do over the next couple of years, actually one of the things it could really do well in these early stages is actually find out the answers to these. Because if those treaties do continue to apply, if it's possible to make them continue to apply, then great, get on with it. The whole negotiation process is much easier. If they don't, then at least you know where you stand. Yeah, I can't imagine a sympathetic hearing for old colonial power, the, U- the UK trying to apply the Vienna Convention for the... Oh, on, let's get it right. Vienna Convention for the Succession of Session of Treaties to their relationship with their old colonial masters, the EU. It doesn't seem to stack up so well. It it doesn't, and it's said it's said, it's said the you know there's a there's a small number of people on the Leave side who keep pushing this, and they're, they're, there's no legal clarity over whether it could ever be invoked. Um, a an, another funny little um, side effect, and actually this is a, you know this is one of Alex's very strong points here is pointing out ironies within. Uh, within negotiations mm. is the situation that Ireland fi- finds itself in. Um, can you give me a little bit about that, Alex? Uh, yeah, so I think it comes down mainly to two issues in Ireland. I think the first one is the common travel area, which, again, correct me if I'm wrong, Christian, is is kind of not an EU thing, and it should be practically very easy and doable for us to maintain it. Um, I yeah, it's, you're, no, you're right. It's nothing to do with the EU. It came in. Uh, it came into power essentially after uh, Irish succession and Irish independence in 1922. So that's why, to this day, you can travel. Any UK citizen can travel to Ireland uh, without any border checks, any yeah. passport checks, essentially. So you're you're free mm. to cross the border without without challenge. Yeah. So I think broadly that that's potentially not too much of a worry. I think the bigger worry is this this. Uh, the, the risk of there being a sudden return of a hard customs border, essentially between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Um, and this will happen essentially because we have said that we want to come outside the customs union, and that would leave uh, basically one half of Ireland in and one half of Ireland out of the customs union, um, by, which, by which case they would need to be basically a hard, a hard border. And all of the things we've spoken about before, where there could no longer be an assumption of of uh, regulatory conformity and all those things would suddenly become in place on the Irish border um, and that potentially means there would need to be uh, new customs procedures, there would need to be, you know, goods would need to be checked as they went across the border um, and obviously this is something which both, both sides very much want to avoid, uh, it's come up in multiple uh, select committees um, that this is something that, which needs to be avoided. It, it kind of looks like, I mean, I can go only off what David Davis said in, in his questioning the other day. Um, it, he mentioned that there's already some kind of light touch regulation that goes on on, on on the border in Ireland and that they would also seek to take a light touch approach to it. But legally, it's, it's certainly not clear how, how that would happen. Um, 
but it's definitely a worry. And um, but yeah, the, the, you mentioned earlier, like pointing out this irony that the 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 Prime Minister of Ireland, Enda Kenny, came out a few days ago and and said that. Ireland would block any deal uh, at the end of the negotiations, which meant that there would be the return of a hard border. But where we are at the minute, um, a rejection of a deal means that we end up with no deal, which would mean that blocking any deal would guarantee the return of a hard border. I mean, that's only, that's only according to how things are meant to work right now. Um, that can go back to this whole, is Article 50 revocable kind of thing. If it turns out that it is, that would change that, um, the whole meaningful vote thing. If, if there's more developments around that, potentially it would change. But at the moment, that comment sort of doesn't make much sense to me. No, I mean, that to me is... Well, Ender Kenny's position is clearly, if you give me a hard border, I will guarantee you a hard border. Yeah, 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 potentially, yeah. yeah. So if, if, if whatever deal you've got, if we're going to get a hard border, I'm going to veto it to, to screw you over as well. <laughs> maybe, yeah. I don't, I don't, maybe, I don't know. Uh, just, uh, you know... Just off this one, do you think there's a real, um, a real possibility that although everyone's looking at maybe Scotland as the uh, naughty child that's going to uh, go, go go independent first, it's actually going to be Northern Ireland for reasons that no 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 one ever realised. Uh, I'm my gut reaction is to say it's unlikely, only because of the the unusual deep sensitivity, political sensitivity mm. around Northern Ireland and, and the Republic. Um, and you know, I'm not I'm not party in any kind of level of detail to the to the subtleties of Northern Ireland politics. But certainly, they're still rebuilding their government. Um, there are some big challenges with the settlement around the what was the Good Friday Agreement negotiated under the under the previous Labour government, which sort of settled essentially set the peace as we know it now. Um, you know, the I think one of the big pol- the big challenges. You know, the the, the the Conservative government ran in both its 2010 and 2015 manifestos for looking at. Uh, a UK Bill of Rights to withdraw itself from the European Court of Human Rights. Note, ECHR is nothing to do with the EU. They are completely separate, so just keep that, sort of keep that at the back of your mind. Um, it's really hard to do because the ECHR is embedded into that Good Friday Agreement as being a key part. And then there's kind of just, obviously, the wider history. You know, Ireland declared independence back in the 20s. Ireland has been a very enthusiastic member of the EU since it joined. It's it's benefited hugely from the from the economic liberalisation that the EU has has delivered for it, um, and actually it wants to be more involved. So this idea of that there's a natural tension here between the the free movement of people concept, um, or at least borderless checks uh, in, um, at borders of the EU and this common travel area. So the the UK is not a signatory to the Schengen Treaty. So the Schengen Treaty is that is the treaty which essentially allows you to cross borders without seeing your pa- without showing your passports. Um, you will know that despite the fact that as a UK citizen you can fly to France and have your passport checked, but if you then cross the border on foot from France to Germany, it won't be checked um, because the UK isn't a signatory. We never mm. wanted that, so that's why we all have to show our passports every time we land in the UK. Um, Ireland wanted to join Schengen. It sees benefits in Schengen, but essentially there's a conflict between that and the common travel area. So at at least at the point of Schengen, it was more important to Ireland that they maintained frictionless travel between the UK and the Republic than it was to be part of that Schengen zone in the EU. Um, And that kind of goes to the heart of the stuff Alex was talking about then. The question is actually how you square this circle. So the, the Republic... And both the Republic and Northern Ireland and indeed our Prime Minister say we want to maintain absolute free borders um, between 
Northern Ireland and the Republic, uh, which presumably also extends to the Republic of Ireland and the rest of the UK um, through flights or, uh, or ferry crossings. The question really is how you do that with the UK outside of the single market. Mm. It's not really how on earth you square that circle because how does UK migration policy work if you can fly as an EU citizen into the Republic of Ireland and are subject to all of the usual checks that you are as you cross the international border, but then there is no border check between the Republic of Ireland and the UK. Exactly. At the moment, that, squ- that circle is squared through the single market and its provision of free movement of people, and it's only if you're then applying for work or trying to claim social security that your nationality matters. Once you take us out mm. of that bit, it's really hard, and it's, it's one of the things we've said and you know, we've talked about here when we go through those, that 12-point plan for Britain that Theresa May announced in January. Um, is you know there's a lot of difficult stuff here getting out of the single market regulating the customs union in the way you want to do so probably the single hardest of all these is that border between the republic and northern ireland yeah yeah completely agree um Jens, is there anything else you want to add on on uh, on the subject of deal or deal or no deal or something that we should cover off uh i'm not i'm not sure there is um I mean, I mean, we could we could talk for hours about it, but it's it's <laughs> yeah. it's kind of, it is it is just kind of making the same points over and over again and list making a big long list of all the things which we'll have to figure out. Yeah, um, I think kind of the high level take, isn't it, is is this idea that you know no deal is better than a bad deal, which has been the, the prime minister's mantra from January, and you know, we've tested this kind of thought with our members, and the thing that comes back is actually we support that view in the sense that you're going into a negotiation. Mm. Nobody goes into a negotiation whether you're looking to buy a business or sign a new contract without your own get-out clause. If you don't, if you're not prepared to go in and say, well, you know, we'll have the discussion, but if we're not happy, we're going to walk away, then you have no negotiation. You go in powerless, saying that we will essentially do whatever you ask. So it's a sensible statement from that point of view. However, it's not a sensible statement in terms of the desired outcome. A deal of some form has to be struck just for, for sheer sanity of managing this transition process. But then we go back to that stuff that I think Alex talked about in the last podcast about this kind of bluff and double bluff game that go, that's going on here. Is The UK is saying, well, we're going to go in negotiating hard because we've got to show we're happy to walk away and we're going to keep all of our negotiating power secret so that we can beat the EU over the head with it when we get into that darkened room. Which just ignores the fact that actually the EU knows our position. The EU mm. knows all of the strong points and all of the weak points in the negotiation process. And the truth is, it knows them infinitely better than we do. Yeah. And so actually, there isn't anything to keep secret here. Um, you know, we, we do need... I understand the gameplay. I understand the fact that both sides are, you know, are shouting wildly. Theresa May and particularly you know, David Davis is being pretty harsh about what they're going to want from the agreement. Juncker and, and compatriots in the EU are doing the same kind of thing. But actually, we fine, that's great. Let's get the Article 50 process triggered. We can all do our displays on the global stage to show how powerful we are. When we get into that negotiating room, there's got to be a softening on both sides to say, you know, there's a lot at stake and we need the best possible deal for all the 300 million people in, uh, in Europe. Yeah, um, I, I just think the, the, the kind of frustrating thing about this whole strategy for me is that it's... We're all sitting here doing, you know, two two podcasts probably more on what no deal means, and and it's kind of pushing all the focus to this idea of no deal, um, when really in reality, and I, I hope this doesn't come back to bite me. I just don't think it's it's possible to happen in its truest sense. Um, Do you think there'll be too much goodwill on both sides for it to happen? 
I don't. I don't even necessarily think that it's goodwill. I. 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 I certainly think it's possible that talks could break down, and potentially, if if it, we, if it gets to it, we could fall out on 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 no deal. But if we get there, and let's say there's two weeks left, they'll they'll be like, okay, let's just shelve everything that we've got so far. Let's sort out as much as we can before this happens. And then if it does happen, it'll be this is this is chaos. We need to come together. We need to figure out all this stuff. Yeah, you know, to try and mitigate all the effects of it. The, the the chances that we will fall back on literally no deal, no new agreement on anything, um, and that it will be the case for a sustained period of time is is close to zero, I would say. Um, and and so the the problem with this strategy from the government is that it's forcing everyone to really really consider what no deal means because the government's suggesting that it might choose no deal. Um, when really the only way that it's going to happen is if there is some kind of massive breakdown in talks. Um, and yeah, so it's pulling all the focus on this idea of no deal, which is the worst case scenario, pretty much. And I think it's kind of creating quite a, quite a scary and, and kind of panic-filled environment. I just don't, I'm not sure it's very helpful, to be honest. Uh, I don't know about you, I, 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 I can't wait for Article 50 to be pointed out. <laughs> just, so, just so they can start talking so we know exactly what issues are going to be put put on the table first mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah absolutely uh, right well um, before we go um, Greater Manchester Tra- Chamber of Commerce have you got any events o- over the next few weeks I imagine with uh, with Article 50 about to kick off you've got a, got a load of stuff going on there's a few things we're developing and working on uh, the next big event for us is the is on the 31st of March that's our quarterly economic update um, so we'll be releasing the results of the of the survey work for the first quarter 2017. Just benchmark where Greater Manchester business is mm. uh, at the start of the year, their hopes and fears for uh, for the rest of it. Um, for Brexit stuff, keep an eye on the diaries. Uh, GMChamber.co.uk forward slash events is uh, where you'll find all that. Excellent, uh, Alex. Where can we find you on Twitter? I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And Christian. And you can find me at GMCC Research. And of course, there's always Pearsons at Pearsons underscore FSB, and myself at at J Beardmore. Um, also, go and visit the the the, the blog of uh, of the same name. Last week in Brexit, and uh, we will see you post Article Fifty. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.